come and, and lead us in the reading for this, and then she's going to pray over me and for the teaching time. My eyesight. All right. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. Whoops. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the good news of Christ. Father, thank you for this word, and I pray now for Gordy as he unpacks it for us, that you would open our hearts, Open our eyes, our ears, our minds, our spirits to receive your word to us. And be on Gordy to speak what you have for us. Amen. So that's quite a text, and I struggle a lot with it. It's probably one of the most difficult texts that I struggle with in the New Testament. And the reason is, is because as much as I may think I'm not that rich young ruler, I still wouldn't be willing to do what Jesus asked him to do with, with, what, with what I have. That's how I feel. I, and I think there's a bit of a lenses and glasses that I approach the text often that I think God is still healing me of, and that God's a taker. 
So how much more? It feels like I've already given everything I have for God, and he still wants more. So there's, there's some of these, these buttons that this text really pushes. Uh, we're, we're going, I, I want to propose some lenses that we put on. You know, we all have glasses that we come to the, the scriptures with. Some of us have social justice glasses. And some of us have, you know, uh, relationship glasses. And, and we look at scripture, and there's lots of insights when we bring these different glasses, but it's, a, it's important to be aware of what glasses we're wearing when we look at Scripture. And uh, we began this series a few weeks ago with my telling the story of the blind priest that the little girl came up to him. And in the middle of the conversation, she realized he was blind, and she said, you're blind. You don't know what you look like. And then she said, you're beautiful. And it was so profound. We talked about how that's a picture of us. That uh, God has created each one of us incredibly beautiful and in his image, in God's image. And he's given us this precious gift of our lives to give back to God and others in, in love and service. But, but the blind priest had experienced a disease in his, his childhood and lost his sight. And, and in, a, in a similar way, life happens to us. Where we become very quickly blind to who we are. And then we take on a false self, a false identity. Because we've forgotten who we are and what we look like. And psychologists have discovered that very early in our lives, it's important to experience what's called proper mirroring. And this, what mirroring is, they call it, is, is, is looking in the eyes of your significant others, your mother, your father, those that first are connecting with you when you're born. And what they mirror back to you in their eyes is who you are. You form your identity and your value and your significance. There's something in them that was meant to say, oh, you're so beautiful. But often we don't get that, do we? And often even in the womb, we suffer trauma. Already we're, we're being blinded by things. And so we end up believing a lie that we are something other than who we are. And Henry Nouwen develops three lies that we believe uh, on the false self. And the first is, I am what I have. The second is, I am what I do or what I've accomplished. And by the way, it... If, if that's our identity, we may either have accumulated things and based our identity on those things, or that's important. Identity or not, we got to have that coffee. Um, I am what I do is we, we're driven by constantly performing to achieve, to somehow gain this. I am what others say or, or think of me. And often we vacillate between all three of those at different points in our lives. And, and the, the issue of money, which comes up in our text today, of course, is quite integral to all of these, isn't it? I am what I have. And often what I do affects what I have, of course, or what I've accomplished. We heard about, the, you know, the, they're a self-made person, a self-made man, a self-made woman. They are, um, uh, or we use the terms, what's he worth, don't we? What's he worth? And what do we mean in our culture? It's like how much money they have, right? And, and, and then 
human notoriety or fame. And the gospel, the good news that we're reading, that we read this morning already, is a constant reminder of what we have forgotten. It's God reminding us who we are through the coming of Jesus, that we are beloved sons and daughters of the one from whom all things have come. And in order to find our true selves, the gospel confronts our false selves. And that's the bad news. That's the hard part, is when our false selves get confronted. And we're, we're seeing this in this text. So if we can wear true and false self glasses today, when we look at this text, it might help us have a little more grace with what's going on for ourselves, for this rich young ruler. Because the gospel is, is God uh, showing us again who we are through, his, through God's eyes. So I want to propose as we put on our glasses and we go through the text again for a few minutes... I want to ask you a question. What if our root problem is not behavioral? You know, doing the right things or the wrong things, which is what this text seems to be saying. If you do the right things, obey the commands, and then that's not enough. It's like sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And it doesn't stop there. It continues with Peter. Well, we've left everything to follow you. You, you, you see what's happening there? There's performance going on. What if our issue is not behavioral? What if it's deeper than that? That at the beginning, it wasn't about us doing the wrong thing, but it was about us losing sight of who we were and seeking to become who we are apart from God. To do it autonomously and to form our identity, what some people call our own self-made salvation project without God. So that the issue is not performance, it's disconnection. It's not about doing the right or wrong things, it's about relationship. That the issue with the prodigal son in the pig pen was not him doing bad things, as horrible as he stunk that day, but as he came to himself, and he went, I got to get back to my father. What if that's the issue? And what if that's what's really going on in this text? What if we were to go back to this text and look at it with those glasses? Could we do that together? Could we have a little adventure? Let's do it. Because I'll tell you, this text, ooh, every time I've read it, I got a bump, you know? You know the bump text where you bump into it and you say, I think I'll just go around that way. <laughs> Keep going. So let's look at it again. So as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now Mark is quite abbreviates who this guy is. So you have to look at the other Gospels to figure out who this guy is. It says, all he hears is a man. That's pretty you know, generic, right? But we know that he's wealthy from this passage as well as from Mark, or, or Luke, and from Matthew. From Matthew, we find out that he's young. He's a young man. From Luke, we find he's a ruler. So he's a rich, young ruler. So what is a Jewish ruler? Think about it. What's a Jewish ruler? He's a religious leader. 
He's a Pharisee. He was with probably in the Sanhedrin, like Nicodemus, and he was, he was one of those guys. And the Pharisees, you know, they get a bad rap. They're kind of the conservative evangelicals of Jesus' time. And they get a bit of a bad rap. Uh, but a lot of them were quite friendly to the teachings of Jesus, and they agreed with his teaching about eternal life. The Sadducees, they were another sect of the religious leaders, more political, kind of aligned with Rome, didn't believe in eternal life. They just believed in the five books of the Pentateuch, and that, they didn't believe in the law and the, in the prophets. And they didn't believe in eternal life. It's kind of, this is your life. And, and they kind of lived that way. They had a lot of wealth. They were sad, you see. That's right. So we learned that in Sunday school. So, um, so he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But when you look at the word, of the, the, the Greek word, aeon, which means life, it's more than just life. It's more than just quantity of life. It's quality of life. In other words, this guy's got, he's doing all the right things. He's dotting the I's and crossing the T's and he's got all this money, but he just feels like life is slipping through his hands. And he's saying, how can I get life to last? It just seems like everything's so futile and, and temporary. And it's just, it's just, it's, my life is slipping away. I'm losing, I feel like I'm losing life. You ever feel that way? That happened when I turned 60. No, 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 no I'm just kidding. So Jesus, he says, what must I do? Now this guy has lived, he's a Pharisee. He's probably Pharisee. And he's probably used to having control. What boxes do I tick? What assembly instructions, instructions do I need to follow for my own self-made salvation project? What are the five steps of my to-do list to have a lasting and meaningful life? And so Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now that's an interesting little kind of detour. So I want to, I want to, can I just, you may, not to, you, may, you may not understand anything I'm going to say for the next five minutes, but would you indulge me? I, I want to just dig into the mystics for a moment. Something's going on here with this, what Jesus is saying. I believe it has everything to do with us not knowing who we are unless we see ourselves through the eyes of God. And, and I, uh, one of my favorite mystics is a German mystic by the name of uh, Meister Eckhart, they used to call him. And he talks about the eye of God. And he says this, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. So there was something about who Jesus is that was, in, is, was important for this young man to know who he was. And so Jesus is, is, is just saying, do you really... Do you know who I am? That I am the reminder from God of what it means to be human and the way that we can be most like God is to be human. Okay, and a lot of his self-title that Jesus gave was the son of the human. That's what, you know, the, the, it's often translated son of man, but the Greek is he was the son of the human one. He was a human being. 
Jesus came to help us recover our humanity. All right, are you still with me? Okay, so thinking caps a little more. Henry Noun, a deeper understanding of the incarnation. What is the incarnation? Christmas is coming. God became flesh. God became a human being. Do you realize that when the Christian theology that God, the creator, was able to become a human being and still be God, what does that say about us? Can I yell a little bit? <laughs> what does that say about us? That the way that we become more like God is to become more human. So it leads to a rethinking of the humanity of God. More and more it is clear that God reveals himself to humanity through humanity. And that a deeper understanding of human behavior leads to a deeper understanding of God. The new insights of psychology, anthropology, sociology... There's a woman that just wrote a great big thick book on the vineyard in the state. She's an anthropologist, not even a, not even a Christian. It's probably the best description of the vineyard movement I've read anywhere. It's better than Welcome to the Vineyard. She's a scientific anthropologist from the University of San Francisco. Incredible book. She spoke at UBC a couple years ago. The new insights of psychology, anthropology, sociology, and so forth are no longer feared as possible threats to the supernatural God but more an invitation to theological reflection on the new insights and understanding. In other words, we, good theology takes all the disciplines. We don't make the Galileo, this mistake of the people of Galileo's age, when he discovered the earth didn't revolve, or wasn't the center of the universe, that, it, that that discovery of science needed to be embraced. That I am not God, Right? But we are very important to God. That we are the crown of God's creation. And that all the disciplines, all the aspects of society are important. So this new theology ought now and goes on to say, by the way, he wrote this in 69, which is incredible. The, this new theology is a great encouragement to mobilize all the human potentialities of human life as being the most authentic way to understand the voice of God to his people. Do you get that? I was so raised differently from that. It was like the world is here and the church is over here. But he's saying the way to get to know God is dive into the world, dive into society, be salt, be light, get involved in civic affairs, get involved in the school system, get involved in law and media and journalism and the arts, get involved and you can know God, you'll meet God, you'll find God. The more we make the world what it ought to be, a created reality with tremendous potentialities for growth, the more the world calls for him who is uncreated. We can't live apart. A new heaven and a new earth. Right? Wow. Just, I, I just, thank you for indulging me. I just, I just had to, had to do this. From Henry Now in his book, Intimacy. Thank you, Jen, for lending me the book. So, let's continue with our text. That's important. Let's just keep that there, media. By the way, speaking of getting involved, make sure you look up your candidates and you research it and you get out and vote this week. 
Okay, for our civic affairs. I want every one of you that are part of the city, you vote. Okay? Can't be more Christian than that. All right. So, you know the commandments, Jesus said. You want to play this little check-the-box game? Let's play the check-the-box game. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Now, that's interesting because that doesn't say that in the Ten Commandments. But it's like Jesus put about three or four texts together and said, you know, uh, you know, I just read a, a, a theology book by an African-American. He talks about white supremacy and that how our whole economic system is based on stolen land and stolen labor. Oops. So Jesus, I don't know if Jesus is kind of doing a little dig about how this guy got so wealthy. I don't know. But it seems like it. Then he goes, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So Jesus doesn't argue with him. He looked at him and he loved him. And by the way, this look, we already talked about the eye. Right? Is there a theme here? The eye? He looked at him and loved him. And this shows up all through the New Testament. We, we see Jesus often preceding a miracle by just looking at somebody, by seeing them. He saw that woman that came and touched him. She wasn't just another statistic that he could put in his revival magazine of somebody that got healed. He stopped, turned around, and he looked at her, and he saw her. There's something about seeing people. I love my wife, and I heard a story this week that just, just made me weep, but she's teaching high school again, and she teaches first thing in the morning, and she walked into a class this week, and there was a young, young grade 10 boy sitting in the front desk, and he looked like what? Just, he was just exhausted. She just saw a look of sheer exhaustion on his face, and she looked at him, and she said, you are so tired. You look so tired. Why don't you just put your head down on the desk and go to sleep? And so they talked for an hour about poetry and English literature, and that young guy slept through the whole class. At the end of the class, he came up, and he thanked her. He said, thank you. He said, I was rushed into the hospital and I was there at the wee hours of the morning last night. Don't ask me why he was asked to go to school. But, but so often we don't see people, do we? We judge. We judge a behavior. And I just felt, that is such an incredible example. So Jesus is seeing this guy. He's seeing the real person and he loved him. He loved this young guy. Okay, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. I believe he became one of the premier disciples in the New Testament era. The story isn't over with this guy. Jesus loved him. And I think there was even a little twinkle in his eye as he looked at him. He said, you're just missing one thing. You checking the boxes? You're doing pretty good. You're a good Pharisee, good rule keeper. You're doing good. Good job. Just one more little thing. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and let's go. You're made for more. You're made for more than this. You got an adventure. Come on, let's go. So Jesus put the bar so high the guy couldn't jump it and he walked away sorrowful because his own self-made salvation project all of a sudden got punctured. Poof. 
And it wasn't about the money, just. It was much deeper than that. It had to do with, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's beyond me. Jesus looked around to his disciples and said to his disciples, see that looking again? How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The actual Greek, when you look at the interlinear, the, the actual Greek there is how, are, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. So it's where you put your confidence. So part of this, guard, this guy's self-made salvation project was his possessions and his security in those possessions. The disciples were amazed. That's a pretty strong word. Shocked at his words. But Jesus, you know, they're thinking, they're, now their own self-made salvation projects are being confronted because they're thinking, we need this guy. He's going to give good offerings. And so they're, they're, now their little idea of a powerful Messiah that's going to be political and take over the world, that idea is being popped. They're... Their, their idea of a Messiah and, and the kingdom and, and value, what's important to God, all of that's being challenged and punctured with this. So Jesus isn't just picking on the rich young ruler. Everybody's getting it. Bam, 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 right? Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't stop at the rich there. He says how hard it is. Anybody. To enter the kingdom of God, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I've heard all kinds of things about there's a, you know, a gate in Jerusalem and you, you know, a camel has to get on its knees and take off all its baggage to get. There's no proof of that. All Jesus is using is hyperbole. It's impossible. That's all he's saying. So... The disciples saw their, their project being punctured. Jesus is talking about where do you put your confidence and your trust? Is it in your own abilities, your own ability to check off the boxes, follow a formula to do the right things, to build your own salvation project, or do you recognize your utter destitution and dependency on God's grace and mercy? And it's nothing but grace and mercy because with people, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The disciples were even more amazed. Now the, the, the literal Greek is they were shocked beyond words. Their value system, the, the wealth was a sign of God's favor in their own value system and their salvation projects. So they said to Jesus, nobody can be saved. If, if the 1% can't make it, what about the rest of us 99%? We're not going to make it. There it is again. Jesus looked at them. See that? He looked at them. He said, with man or humans, that, that word's anthropos, which means humanity, with humans this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The whole message of this is not about a guy who's supposed to throw all his wealth away, maybe irresponsibly, because you sometimes helping hurts, right? And it would be irresponsible for, for us to do this, literally. That would be irresponsible to do that. That's not the message. The message is, where's your confidence? What are you trusting in for your salvation, for eternal life, for the life that is available to us? And Peter still didn't get it. Oh, well, we've we checked the box. We did what he's not willing to do. Yeah, Peter, a few stinking fish in a rotting net, 
Way to go, Peter. I mean, some of us don't have a lot left to lose in this. This guy had a lot to lose. Peter didn't. But he's still, he's still not getting what's going on here. Still about checking the right box. Ah, Jesus, we checked the box. We're in. So Jesus indulges him a little bit. He says, I tell you, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Holmes, brothers, you read it earlier. Let me say this. Jesus is saying, are you, are you worried about what God wants to get from you? Is, you think that's the issue? Listen, this isn't about a taking. This isn't about God taking. God's a giver. God's a giver. Some of you have heard that story that I told about Dee and Marcus. Dee's our daughter. She grew up in the church. She runs a little daycare here in Montessori. And, and uh, it, was, it was such a fairy tale, you know, wedding. She married Marcus, the Swiss, you know, vineyard guy. and They were our associate pastors. And it was just such a healing time for me because there, Vancouver is such a transient city and you People come into your church and you invest in them and you love them and you fall in love with them and then they go and your heart is broken. And you start to get almost uh, afraid to invest. That's how you feel. You feel like, ah, should I open my heart again? Should I open my heart up again? So in 2002, we had this amazing wedding and they were part of our church for a couple years and Marcus was my associate here and we were just on a roll. And one day they called me and and, and uh, Kathleen and I and said that we've been praying and we feel that God's called us to go to Switzerland. And, I, and we prayed and talked with them and it just, it was a knife through my heart. Just a knife through my heart. And I remember going over, just over here to Brighton Park in my van and I raged. I raged at God. I just said, I've had it. This is it. I'm done. I can't take it anymore. You're you're taking. And, and by the way, Samuel, my first grandchild, had arrived a year before. And he and I, I mean, he had me around his little finger. And they were taking him too. And I raged at God. And through the tears, I just poured out my heart in anger, frustration. I just said, God, I'm done. I'm going to go to a place that's more stable and you know, a nice country church. And, and all of a sudden, I heard these words say to me, would you give them to me? And when I heard those words, I went, whoa. You mean you're asking me to give them to you as a gift? And I went, wait a minute. I, I know you well enough. I, can, I have never been able to outgive you. Never, never, never. And so I did. That's how I came to peace with him. I gave them as a gift. It still hurt. I grieved. And the church grieved with, with me beautifully. And then God just gave us an explosion of families and kids. And we had an amazing season. And then a couple years ago, they moved back. God gave them back. And, you know, um, you can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. So it's not, about, it's not about what God wants to take. But sometimes there's, 
you know, there's these seasons in our life where we're, we're asked to trust in his character, that he's a giver and he's good and he's for us. And so I got a little sidetracked with that. I should wrap this up. Uh, so Jesus says, but many are first who will be last, and the last will be first. And there's, there's a sense there that uh, Peter, Peter is, is jumping into the same crowd of the checkbox list, and Jesus, Jesus says, wait a minute, it's not about that. But the last will be first and the first last. What's that? Well, in my mind, and I think it's, it's pretty clear in the text, in all three texts, that this rich young ruler, let's imagine for a second that, that, it, that he, just, he just went, Jesus, I can't do that. That's just, I can't. But can I hang around? Or, here's what I think happened. I think his salvation project was busted, popped. And I think he just went home and he just began to feel the emptiness and the futility of life as he'd known it. And he realized it was no longer about checking off the boxes, but surrendering to God's mercy and grace. And some believe that he was none other than Paul, the apostle, Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, wealthy man. Or... Barnabas, or um, some believe Lazarus, because Lazarus was also a ruler with the Jews. If you read how the, Jew, the Jewish leaders came and, at his death, and, and that through that process, John Mark's family was very wealthy. Um, they, they, their house was the upper room, the day of Pentecost. So we know that Jesus allowed people to keep their wealth. It wasn't like he was asking everybody to do this. But it's just where, what is your image? What is your identity? So again, as I, wrapped, as I said, what if the root issue is not our behavior? It's not about checking off the boxes. Now don't get me wrong, good behavior is good. I'm not dissing that, but that's not the root issue here. That good behavior comes out of a true self, who we really are. Otherwise, our good behavior can be a mask like the Pharisees had. It can be a false self. And so what if our issue is deeper? It's not rebellion, but it's independence on our own autonomy. That we want to go it alone and build our own salvation project. What if the issue is not about bad behavior, but about our independence and our autonomy? And that the solution then is not moral reform. The solution is not right behavior. The solution is giving up our autonomy, like the prodigal son who said, came to himself and said, I will go back to my father. What if our greatest friend is our brokenness? What if our greatest friend is our addictions? What if the greatest friend is our passions and lusts and anger and things that... We feel we can't control. Because if we allow them to, they drive us to God and not away from God. 
They can be our greatest friend to expose our false selves and our false dependencies, and they drive us broken and dependent to God and back to our truest selves, like the prodigal son. So, that's it. Root, root issue is our heart's longing for home. So three questions I want us to reflect on. A story such as this can create anxiety about what God is asking us to give up. How does this anxiety you feel, and I ask this to, of myself, reflect on your image of God? That what, what is God like? I think that's an important question to ask with this story. Secondly, take some time in silence and reflect in reflection with this question, what is the one thing in my life that most keeps me from intimacy with God and others? You know, this man's addiction was his money. That kept him from community. And at some point, he had, to, he had to give up that false self that was keeping him from others and from God. And if anything comes to mind, reflect on any anxiety that may be connected to, to the one thing, including where you are putting your trust as it relates to your identity and your security. And take some time to receive prayer into this from someone you love and trust. Here's what I feel the Lord wants to do for some of you today. Maybe a lot of you. The bad news is if we're not mirrored well in our early childhood, we lose our sense of self. The good news is that God has given us his family, his church. To restore that eye so that we see ourselves in his eyes through one another, through the church, through the body of Christ. And I feel like through encouragement and through prayer and through hugs and through just being present to each other, some powerful mirroring is going to happen today. And we're going to see you. And you're going to see yourself. Yeah, healing circle. Like it. You want to have a healing circle up here. Be awesome, friends. So let's hold these questions and wait before the Lord and just see what God does.
Just let him come. Let him embrace you. You are a precious gift from the heart of God given to us We reverence your humanity. We reverence the holiness of you, the sacredness. Break off shame. We break off accusation. We break off guilt, ridicule demeaning words. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord. One love. One love. One heart. Just feel the <clears throat> the Lord would like to bring assurance to some of us that He's gone to prepare a place for you that you don't have to be in anxiety about it. It talks about how the Father goes to prepare a place for us in His house. There are many mansions. We often think about that in heaven, or maybe we still are anxious about that. Um, some of you, like me, were raised to believe you had to go to purgatory before you ever got, you got, you maybe had to get roasted a bit before you got to get into heaven. So you had to go there half fried or something, logically, if you're going to go to purgatory and be purged. But the Lord today wants to bring us assurance that he's preparing a place for us. So he's working on our behalf. And along with that, I feel like God wants to destroy the lie that some of us or have embraced it, if I don't do it, it won't get done. If I don't do it, nobody else will do it. And so then we work ourselves up into a frenetic round of activities, trying to always be doing something. I know that that, um, obsession. I've been there. I have to work really hard not just to fall into grace, fall into peace, fall into quietude. So, Father, I ask that you would come and and transform us by the renewing of the spirit of our minds today. You deliver us, Jesus, from thinking that we have to do things to get things done. We just release that to you. And more than anything, we receive the gift of assurance. You never slumber nor sleep, so we can find rest. So I just receive rest and our body, I just, in the name of Jesus, receive sleep and rest. I drive out every insomnia that's trying to come to many of us in this community.
In Jesus' name. So we're going to open it up for a heal, uh, prayer for healing. If you need healing in mind, spirit, body, feel free to come forward for prayer or just to have somebody pray for you. Some of these things have touched you. and I encourage you to, to not rush off without having someone pray into that for, with you that you trust. Uh, uh, if what Kathleen has shared has spoken to you and you'd like more prayer into that, I, I felt like that word she was given, I hear the Lord just saying that was such a prophetic metaphor for some of you. Just put your head down on your desk and have a seat. It's okay. The rest of us will carry on. And when you wake up, you can just join us again. And Kirsten, I feel you should come and just say the benediction. I know I didn't prepare you for that. But uh, thank you, Dan and Kirsten, for covering as our overseers today. And uh, why don't we all stand, if you can, physically. And we just want to bless you. Go in peace. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and if you would like prayer, come to the front. If you would like to form a healing circle with people you trust, you can do that too. Thanks. Oh, by the way, uh, Barbara bought some, brought some bannock today. So thank you, Barbara, for that. So we do have a snack. <laughs> and enjoy coffee and tea and time with each other.